Chapter 15 of Paul, a Herald of the Cross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Paul, a Herald of the Cross by Florence M. Kingsley. Chapter 15 Caius the God. He is asleep then, my Codrus? For the moment, yes, thanks be to the gods, if thou canst call a drunken stupor sleep. He sleeps no more, save as his eyelids fall for a moment from exhaustion. Since his illness he hath strangely altered both in his temper and in his habits. Can it be that the envious gods have smitten him? Codrus shrugged his shoulders. Were there gods in heaven, my Narcissus? Think you that our illustrious master would be suffered to exist? He alone is God. He hath declared it. We must needs believe it. Yesterday he spit upon the image of Jupiter. The day before he smote Diana on the mouth. Tomorrow he will himself be Apollo and receive the homage of the people. Of late his divinity hath grown too big for his mortal frame. Hence these frenzied rollings of the eyes, these midnight mutterings, this strange thirst for blood which he bids stream from noble veins in his very presence. Thou wert at the banquet last night? I stood behind his couch, and saw strange sights, my Narcissus. It thundered while the nightingale's tongues were being passed. The emperor leapt from his couch in a frenzy, and lifting his hand to heaven rebuked Jupiter for daring to hurl his thunderbolts whilst he, Caius, was supping. Did the storm cease? Did it cease? Where wast thou, dullard, that thou dost ask the question? By my faith I was asleep. A mortal must sometimes sleep. Even as he spoke, another bolt fell with crashing and thunderous sound, seemingly in our very midst. The cups trembled on the board. The women shrieked with fright. A libation! A libation! they cried. Pour a libation to Jupiter that he slay us not in his wrath. A libation shall be poured, fair ladies, said the emperor. He beckoned to the officer who stood on guard and whispered in his ear. Afterward he bade me hand him his sandals, since he would eat no more till the sacrifice should be made. The others commanded he to remain where they were, especially the ladies, he said, at whose request this libation is to be made. He walked up and down the portico, laughing to himself and muttering, till presently the officer returned, bringing with him three wretches bound hand and foot. These crawled to the feet of the emperor, shrieking for mercy. He ordered the soldiers to tear from the robes of the women pieces large enough to gag the prisoners. And they suffered it? What else, my Narcissus? The god had decreed it. The prisoners were gagged, as I have said. Afterward they were beheaded before the whole company, the emperor standing so near that his feet were bathed in the rushing torrent of their blood. Hark! I hear a sound from within. He is awake. Yes, and the dawn is breaking. Order Charitas to bring the posset. The emperor lay upon his back, staring up into the folds of the purple canopy above his head. He did not stir as Codrus entered on noiseless foot, but he seemed nevertheless to be aware of his presence. Is Macro without? he asked in a querulous voice. A vision of the night, perchance, yet lingers with the majesty of the universe responded the chief officer of the bedchamber. Macro is indeed without, and in that he no longer... True, he is dead. I killed him. I had forgotten his wife Enia also, and Marcus Silenus. 
Ha ha! A merry conceit was that of last night. My brother Jupiter will be pleased with such honors. As for the silly sheep who bleated for a libation, their mouths will be shut another time. Come, I must be stirring. Quick, my robe, my sandals. But there is one thing, slave, that I will not bear. Hear it. I will not again endure the presence of that grinning fool, Tiberius Gemellus. I always hated him. All night he hath been in my chamber, peeping from behind the curtains, staring and grimacing like the witless clown that he is. Let him be sought and plunged into the deepest dungeon of the Tullianum. Codrus grew pale, and glanced with an involuntary shudder at the voluminous folds of purple drapery which shaded the imperial couch. The, the wine, perhaps, he said hesitatingly, which the supreme being of the world drank last night hath caused visions of unhappy import to visit the royal pillow. Surely a humble worshipper of the living deity may wish all enemies of Rome to be even as is the young man Tiberius Gemellus. Thou dost mean that he is already dead? said Caius quickly, fixing his red eyes upon the cringing menial. By my faith I had supposed so until last night. Well, it was a dream then. Let the immortals beware in future how they choose the night visions of the emperor of Rome. Ah, stay, the merchant who furnished last night's wine. Let him be drowned in a cask of his accursed dream-breeding liquor. See to it. And now command Helicon and Apelles to breakfast with us. They shall drive these foul visions of the night afar into oblivion and darkness. Codrus bit his lip in silent anger. What? Helicon, a low Egyptian slave, and Apelles, a second-rate actor, to breakfast with the emperor where he must serve? For despite his freedom and his rapidly growing wealth, it suited the emperor to employ him about his presence in the most menial capacities. What hast thou to tell me this morning concerning the Alexandrian riots? demanded Caius, when the three were dallying with the spiced fish dressed with peacock's brains, which formed one of the principal dishes at the morning meal. Look you at my stockings, he added, suddenly thrusting out his misshapen legs. Gold thread embroidered with pearls, a pretty conceit, say you not so? I am minded to personate Venus today. A glorious thought, exclaimed Helicon, casting down his eyes. Ay, why not, pursued the emperor, in a robe of silver gauze bound with a girdle of emeralds. Shall I not be radiant, divine? But Cerberus devour the gods and goddesses. There is something more important on hand. These Alexandrian Jews now, what of them? They still refuse to pay divine honors to the lord of the whole earth, replied Apelles, with an air of mingled grief and indignation. They have suffered for their obstinacy, it is true, and that they have been driven from their possessions, burnt alive, tortured, compelled to eat swine's flesh, and— I know all this, growled Caius, frowning, and it pleaseth me not. The Jews are peaceable and industrious, valuable as money-getters and traitors. The prosperity of the empire doth depend, perchance, on these same Jews. I have already commanded that Flaccus, who hath inflicted upon them these sufferings contrary to the law, shall be banished. Nay, he shall die, since if he live he may employ his breath in praying for my destruction. I have heard the like. He paused, his head sank forward upon his breast. His guests exchanged stealthy glances of terror and dismay. I should not have spoken of these matters, ventured Helicon at length, save for a horrible thing which came to my ears only this morning. A horrible thing, then relate it by all means, said the emperor, bringing his wandering gaze to a standstill upon the speaker. 
The Jews of Jamnia, divine Caius, seeing an altar which the Romans had erected to thy honor and glory, tore it down and trampled the fragments underfoot. What art thou saying? shrieked Caius, springing to his feet. Are the dogs not satisfied with refusing me the honors which are my due, that they also destroy the altars which pious hands have erected? It is too true, alas, sighed Helicon, rolling up his eyes sanctimoniously, and affecting not to notice that the emperor, finding words too feeble for his purpose, was smashing the delicate cups and crystal dishes which adorned the table. Fool! shouted Caius, his eyes starting from his head. Why dost thou lie there like a sated beast whilst thy god is displeasured? He followed this question with the contents of his brimming goblet, then seeing the sudden change which swept over the face of his victim as he gasped and spluttered helplessly, he burst into a fit of discordant laughter. I was about to suggest, glorious majesty, said Helicon, wiping his face with what composure he could muster that there is a way of punishing these vile Jews, and at the same time of securing to thyself the rights of thy Godhead, and that is to place within the shrine of their temple at Jerusalem a colossal image of thyself with the attributes of divinity. To Jerusalem all the tribes of the Jewish nation resort for worship and continual sacrifices burn upon its altars. In Jerusalem! In the temple, exclaimed Caius, with the malignant distortion of his visage which passed for a smile. By the shades of my fathers, it is an inspiration from Olympus. What have they in their shrine which must be removed to make room for my image? It shall be destroyed at once, and the place thereof remain empty until the Colossus be wrought. I am told that there is nothing in their shrine, divine majesty, replied the slave. Tis an empty, dark, closed-curtained cell in which they believe the invisible presence of their god resides. To this emptiness they pay their vows, and before it smoke countless offerings. Poor fools, cried Caius, striding up and down the apartment with long, uneven steps. We shall confer an actual benefit by giving them somewhat to worship. I, a golden colossus with face and hands of wrought ivory, seated on a lofty throne set with gems of every color, in the right hand shall be the thunderbolts of Jove, and beneath the feet the emblems of every other god and king under heaven to signify that I, Caius Caesar, am God of gods, and king of kings, a glorious thought of mine. Send quickly for Cassius Chariot. I will order the work begun in this self-same hour. Whilst thou art waiting the presence of the tribune, said the royal chamberlain, advancing, will it please your majesty to receive one Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee, with Herodias his wife? They seek now for the third time an opportunity of paying their court to the majesty of the universe. Antipas? Ha, a Jew, I remember him, a son of that old fox Herod, and himself a sly and conscienceless rascal. T'was in Rome he carried off this Herodias. She was his brother's wife and a very wonder of beauty. Fetch them in, and at once. They send you this with their humblest worship, said Codrus, presenting a case, which when opened displayed a heavy chain of gold clasped with an engraved gem of great value. A pretty trifle, remarked the emperor, glancing at it carelessly. Give it to Helicon here. It will serve to ease his vanity for the wine I wasted on him at breakfast. Here are also letters from the King Agrippa to the Emperor of Rome, which came this morning by the hand of Fortunatus, a slave, continued Codrus. And what hath Agrippa to say? exclaimed the emperor, who was apparently in high good humor for the moment. 
The fellow hath already run through the gold I gave him, I'll warrant me, and asks for more. Well, he shall have it, this kinsman of his, who is without, shall give it him. What is this? Scorpions and furies, bring in the Jew, I say, and the woman. Will not the divine majesty receive these persons in the audience chamber? suggested Codrus. All is prepared, and the court is in attendance. Perchance they hunger after their long journey, and would break their fast with the remains of our morning's meal, sneered Caius, glancing at the disordered table. As ever thoughtful of the best good of others, but the radiance of thy glory will scarce appear in this guise to the eyes of strangers, ventured Narcissus, who had entered followed by two slaves laden with gorgeous robes. That is true, assented Caius, looking down at his untidy person. Tire me quickly, I will receive them in the audience chamber. To Herodias, who yet waited with her husband in the anteroom of the palace, the moments lingered leaden-footed. Again and again she glanced impatiently into the great mirrors which hung upon the walls, bidding her tire-woman make fresh changes in the disposition of her veil, in the arrangement of her jewels, in the folds of her richly embroidered robe. Antipas, pale and silent, strode up and down the apartment, paying no heed to the curious glances of the liveried pages, who whispered and tittered about the great doors which shut off the audience chamber from view. He paused at length before the princess and looked at her in silence, his burning eyes roving with feverish impatience over every detail of her magnificent dress, and coming at last to a standstill on the beautiful flushed face. Herodias, he murmured with a beseeching look, it is not yet too late to draw back from this dangerous venture. Since we have come, let us pay our court to the emperor as befits our rank, but something warns me that this is not the time to beg for favors. Not the time, exclaimed Herodias, with an impatient gesture, and when will a better time arrive? Hast thou then consulted the auspices, that thou dost prate of times and seasons? At the worst we shall but be refused, and I swear I fear it not. I only fear, lest in our modesty we ask too little. But see, the doors are opened, they beckon us to advance. Caius Caesar, seated on his lofty chair of wrought ivory, stared at the man and woman who now slowly and reverently approached, with a look to which those of his courtiers who stood about him were no strangers. His fierce yet dull eyes seemed to have withdrawn themselves beast-like beneath a bulging, wrinkled forehead. His face, the color and apparent consistency of impure wax, was distorted by a frightful expression which, although it drew back the lips, revealing the yellowish, pointed teeth within, could by no stretch of the imagination be termed a smile. The two knelt for an instant, then arose and stood with bowed heads, as if awaiting some token of recognition from the motionless form before them. The emperor continued to stare with unwinking eyes, but it was remarked that after the first glance he had fixed his gaze upon the woman who with proud consciousness of her glorious beauty, still allowed her long lashes to shadow the smooth oval of her olive cheeks. A handsome woman, I swear it by the immortals, he croaked at length. What sayest thou, Asiaticus, is she not handsomer than the Empress of Rome? Herodias lifted her great black eyes, a spark of womanly indignation burning in their depths, and fixed them boldly upon the man in the ivory chair. We have come, she said in a ringing voice, to crave from thee a boon. A boon? Ay, of course, they all want something. Thou didst not answer my question, Valerius Asiaticus. 
Is not this woman handsomer than the Empress of Rome? The man to whom he addressed the question grew pale. Tis impossible, he faltered at length, that any woman can be more divinely beautiful than the consort of the emperor. Thou hast lied, Asiaticus, replied the emperor coolly. Yesterday also thou didst lie to me twice, thrice concerning, well, no matter what. Tonight after we have supped, we shall try thee by the rack, to see if by any means we shall be able to draw out from thee the truth about certain matters concerning which we are in doubt. Do not forget the hour. Then he turned to Herodias. Such is the manner in which we deal with these stubborn lying Romans, my pretty one. The cord, the rack, the plate, the fire. We try them all in turn. I one and all. A boon, saidst thou? Now what is it? The son of Herod, my husband, shall place the matter before thee, answered Herodias, indicating with a superb gesture the man at her side. Speak, son of Herod, what wilt thou? Antipas straightened himself. As the son of that great Herod, he began resolutely, who formerly held sway over all the nations of Israel under the empire of Rome, I would crave of thee the right to wear the crown of my father, and to add to my domain the province of Judea. A boon, indeed! A pretty boon! exclaimed Caius. Canst thou show me any reason why I should grant thee this favor, son of Herod? None, save that I am loyal to Rome and that the crown I crave is mine by right of descent. Stay not so fast, good Herod. Thou art loyal to Rome, sayest thou? Then what meaneth this letter which came to my hand this very day? Tis writ by Agrippa, whom I made king, because I had willed that he who had worn a chain for me should also wear a crown. Listen while I shall read to thee from this same letter. I am grieved to irk thee with tidings of evil, beloved friend. For so have I received permission to term thee who art king of kings. But nevertheless it seemeth to be necessary for thy peace and the peace of Rome, that thou shouldest be aware that Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee, doth meditate treason against thy glorious majesty. To this end he hath conspired with Artabanus, king of Parthia, to overthrow the government of Rome and hath made ready in his armory equipment sufficient for seventy thousand men. What sayest thou, son of Herod, to this accusation? The face of Antipas had gradually assumed the livid hues of death as he listened to the reading of this letter. His head fell forward. He seemed not to have heard the emperor's question, for he made no effort to answer it. How now, Jew? Art stricken dumb that thou canst not answer a plain question? Hast thou this armor, as King Agrippa doth allege, or hast thou not? My royal consort is unable to answer so terrible and so false an accusation, said Herodias haughtily, made moreover by a kinsman who was formerly but a beggared outlaw, dependent upon our bounty for the food which he ate. We have warmed a viper in our bosom, and it has stung us, as is the fashion of such deadly reptiles. I stung thee to the death, fair one unless thou shalt shortly prove thine innocence of this treason. Once more, Herod Antipas, hast thou the armor? I have the armor, replied Antipas in a dull, hollow tone. But may not the governor of a province maintain an armed force sufficient to preserve peace within his domains, without incurring the charge of treason? 
Seventy thousand men can scarce be necessary to preserve peace within the confines of Galilee, in addition to the Roman legions which are within ready call, said the emperor with biting emphasis. Hear now the boon which thou shalt receive. The Tetrarchy of Galilee, with all the revenues and appurtenances thereof, I do hereby take from thee, and I do bestow it by virtue of my imperial authority upon Agrippa. Moreover thou shalt be deprived of whatever private wealth thou hast acquired, and shalt in the future make thy residence in the province of Gaul, to which province thou art henceforth perpetually exiled. As for thee, fair lady, since thou art, as I further learn from this letter, own sister to Herod Agrippa, I do offer thee asylum and support in Rome, suitable to thy rank. Freed from this blundering knave whom thou hast called husband, thou shalt yet reign queen of beauty in a kindlier sphere. I, the emperor of Rome, have sworn it. Herodias looked for an instant into the leering mask which bent toward her. Then she turned away with a haughty gesture of refusal. Thou hast indeed, O emperor, extended to me a boon which is in accord with thy imperial magnificence. But the kindness which I have for my husband hinders me from partaking of the favor of thy gift. For it is but just that I, who have been made the partner of his prosperity, shall also cleave to him in the hour of his adversity. Antipas raised his haggard eyes full of mute questionings, and fixed them upon the woman at his side. Something in the pallid, unsmiling face answered him. I have received my crown, he cried aloud. But the emperor sprang to his feet in sudden fury. Go, woman, he cried with a terrible execration, and when lashed by the furies thou art perishing in squalor and misery, remember what thou hast lost. So the two went away into banishment and oblivion, for what befell them from that hour is known to no man. Yet who shall say that their last days were not their best days, since at the last love went with them? End of chapter 15